Uh, in terms of uh, the preaching of the word this morning, we are back in 1 Kings. We will be continuing on uh, with this narrative, this, this series we've been doing, exploring the life and times of Elijah. Today, we get to meet for the very first time Elijah's, uh, I'll call him spiritual successor. Elijah's, uh, we m- might call him a prophetic protege to Elijah. And it's this young man by the name of Elisha. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth between Elijah and Elisha this morning. And I'll try and keep us straight, but it might get a little confusing. Hopefully, hopefully we'll all be okay. Elisha, right? you with me? Okay. My, my, I've noticed my wife calls him Alyssa. Alicia, Alyssa, you've been saying, anyway, so, but, but I'm, my point in saying that is it might be helpful because it distinguishes more than Elijah and Elisha. Anyway, so 1 Kings 19, we're looking at just three verses, so if you're still, you know, on the tryptophan and you're still falling asleep, we, we only have three verses uh, this morning to look at, verses 19 through 21 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. So uh, if you're with me still, let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's word. God's word in the scriptures say this. So he, Elijah, departed from there, Mount Horeb, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he, Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled them, I'm sorry, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is God's word. Remain standing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we are grateful to be gathered in this place in your name. Lord, we're grateful to have the scriptures before us, and we pray that you would use this time for your purposes in our lives and in our hearts, Lord, um, to build us up in the realities of grace and of the gospel, Lord, to convict us of sin, Lord, to do the things that only you can do by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So, church, um, in the book of Isaiah, to kind of switch it up real quick and think about a different prophet, not Elijah, think of Isaiah, chapter 40. Uh, God's word tells us that all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field goes on, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Isaiah goes on from there and builds on this reflection, but even just right there, there's a, there's a powerful, important little nugget. Right? It's this idea that Isaiah is bringing up and clarifying that physical realities are not forever. Physical bodies are not forever. Life as we know it right here and right now is not eternal. In the story of Elijah, coming back to 1 Kings, as we come to it today, especially in chapter 19, uh, the breath of the Lord, we might say, is beginning to blow. Although Elijah's time as one of Israel's most prominent prophets is not yet over, we are at least beginning to see 
what we could call the passing of the baton to another generation. We're beginning to see what comes next after Elijah. As the Lord himself has just outlined, spelled out very clearly for Elijah in the previous section of 1 Kings chapter 19, looking especially at verses 15 through 18, it becomes very clear there that God's plan of redemption for his people, God's plan of salvation, it is, it is on the move. It is happening. It is moving forward. Although Elijah, as God's prophet, seems to be uh, kind of stuck, as we were reflecting in a couple weeks back, Elijah himself seems to be in some kind of spiritual funk, kind of a little bit of a, he's, he's kind of spinning a spiritual rut of some kind. He's just in this place we noted a couple of weeks ago where the mantra in his head over and over again is this idea that somehow he alone is left among those who are faithful to the Lord in Israel. Even though that's, that's Elijah's headspace, the truth is the Lord's mission is not stuck. Like the Lord is not stuck. His, his purposes is, are going forward, right? God's purpose in this moment, as we see it in 1 Kings and kind of check out the whole narrative that we see unfolding in the story here, is that that God is here and he is out in this particular moment to eliminate and to purge this false worship of Baal and of Baalism from among his people. And that purpose is going forward, will continue to go forward. And the reality is it will continue to go forward whether or not Elisha is the main prophet doing it or not. Whether Elijah is the main prophetic voice, whether he's the the primary human instrument or not, God's purposes will will continue and will go forward. God himself very clearly has a plan. Again, thinking back to Isaiah 40, where we started a moment ago, verse 8, just a little bit from where we read a moment ago, says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but if you know the verse, but what? Yeah. The word of the Lord, the word of our God, will stand forever. The word of God will continue to do its thing. Such is always the case with the prophets of God. The prophets come and go. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's in between. Prophets come and go, but the word of God, the intentions of God, the purpose, the mission of God, continues to go forward. Now, as you may remember, may not remember from a couple weeks ago, Elijah, at this point, uh, has just received, actually, some very specific, we could call them marching orders, from the Lord about what's coming next, what what he is to do, where the story is going from here. If we remember, uh, you know, Elijah has had this kind of moment of despair, and he was on Mount Horeb, and it was kind of this earth, wind, and fire moment, right, where God shows up in these miraculous ways, but then his low whisper speaks to Elijah. And in that, God tells him, hey, here's, here's what you're going to do from here. These marching orders. And specifically, if you look back at verses 15 and 16 of what came before, we see three people, three people, that Elijah has been called to anoint as future leaders for the story that God is writing for what is to come. Specifically, he's to anoint two kings and one prophet. You look back and see it. I think I have it on the text. Yeah, this is 15, 16. You can already see it. I'll read it for us just for the context here. It says, And the Lord said to Elijah that the bell is ringing. That's okay. He can still be the prophet. 
when the bell is ringing. It's a very happy, it's a very robust bell today. Okay, there we go. Very vigorous. Okay. So, uh, and the Lord said to Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall, three things, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Second, uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And then thirdly, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So boom, 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 anoint these three guys. Haziel, you know, over Syria. Syria is, you know, Israel's neighbor to the north. He's going to be king over there. Jehu, things aren't looking good for Ahab, right? So Ahab's days are probably numbered. Jehu's going to be the king over Israel. And then Elisha is going to replace you, Elijah. Right? So God has a plan. He's outlining. These, this is what Elijah is to do and to uh, see that happens, right? To go to these people to anoint them. So even though Elijah might be thinking, it's all over, woe is me, right? God's like, nope, I got this. I got a plan. And here it is. We'll see how this plays out in uh, future chapters in 1 Kings. But as, as of right now, our focus will be these three verses. It's all about this son of Shaphat. Right? It's all about Elisha here as this uh, successor to Elijah and this, this future prophet of Israel. You know, the, the thing for me that I couldn't get over as I was reflecting just on these super brief uh, three verses this week is Elijah's response. I'm sorry, forgive me. Scratch that. Elisha's response. Right? Elijah's response to uh, when Elijah comes calling, we see this super clear all-in devotion response. From Elisha. You know, thinking about devotion and what, what does devotion look like? Like, how do we think about it in our lives? Um, I was thinking of various analogies and like word pictures that like might be helpful. And uh, I don't know if this one's helpful or not, but what I thought of this week is, you know, I don't, okay, so how many of you are dog people? Yeah, okay, so there's a good number of dog people. I would say I'm a dog, but we don't own a dog, but. Um, I'm more of a dog person than a cat person, not because I got anything against cats, but because cats make me want to tear my eyes out. So just allergies, right? Um, so anyway, dog people. If, if you've been around a dog, uh, you know uh, they have all these kind of toys that you play with with a dog. And one of those toys is, you know, those, those braided ropes. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about? And if, you, if you're around a dog and you have one of those braided ropes, what happens? You might throw it to the dog a couple times. They might bring it back a couple times. But very quickly, you are playing tug-of-war, right? Like, you are yanking this way, that way, you know, up and down, every which way, as fast and as hard as you want, and that dog is on that rope, right? You, you can even, if it's a small enough dog, like, you can lift up the rope, and the dog will just be, like, clamped on, right? Just, you know, like, he's not letting go. Just total commitment, total devotion to that rope, Right? Might be a bad analogy as we think about a human being and as we think about Elisha here. But that was, that was one of the pictures that came to my mind this week. Elisha's devotion is kind of like that as Elijah comes with this call. Really, as I saw it this week in the text, I, I see kind of a progression here that develops. 
And it's this progression of how we see uh, Elisha's devotion uh, kind of flowing. And it starts, it's kind of three, three kind of ways this flows out. Uh, it starts with this moment of symbolic covering. And we see that Elisha's devotion kind of continues with this kind of cutting off from old ties and from his old life. And then thirdly, we see this devotion kind of uh, come to this climax in Elisha having a whole new direction for his life. So devotion comes clear in this covering, this cutting off, and this new direction. And I think, as I've reflected on it this week, in God's wisdom, each one of these little moments that we see happening for Elijah, there is also a connection to us as we think about what devotion looks like in our lives, in our hearts, especially when it comes to our Savior, Christ. When we think of what Jesus has done, what the gospel is doing in our lives, how it has impacted us, what devotion looks like for us as his disciples. There, there are lessons, there are things we can take away from the interaction we're seeing here in First Kings between Elijah and Elisha and, and who, what we are called to be and to do as followers of Christ. So that's kind of what I want to dig into and kind of, uh, kind of pull out for us over the next few moments. Is it making sense? Okay. I feel, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. All right. So we'll dive in here if you're ready. You ready to dive in? Okay, so first thing, this, what I'm calling the symbolic covering. In the text, we see this right away in verse 19, where Elijah sees Elisha. He's plowing the field with these 12 yoke of oxen. And then all we are told is that Elijah passed by Elisha and, you know, cast his cloak upon him in verse 19. This is, I mean, this is kind of strange, right? It's kind of a weird moment. I mean, we know Elisha is a guy who's, you know, he's traveling all around. At some, in some places, he can, he can run incredibly fast when the Lord gives him the ability to do that. So in this passage, too, it appears that Elijah is on the move. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, we don't at all get the impression that he is wanting to, like, sit down with, with Elisha and, like, have a cup of coffee and, like, explain to him, like, what the Lord has just told him. Like, Elijah's moving, he's, he's going. And then, as he is going, he, like, literally begins to take off this article of clothing that he's wearing. Or maybe he's carrying it, whatever. This thing that, at least in the English uh, standard version, the ESV calls it a cloak. Uh, we, we might think of it more in terms of being, like, an overcoat or uh, like a robe. Basically, it's, it's not his base layer, right? This is like a, like a secondary layer, like something he would wear, especially at night, to keep warm. And uh, so as Elijah's moving, he takes off this, this layer, this outer layer, and then somehow either wraps it around or throws it on top of Elisha as Elijah is doing his work in the field, and then Elijah just keeps on going. Like, what? What the heck, Elijah? What, what is this? What does this mean? This is a strange moment. But the reality is, you might already be thinking this. You're like, but Brian, this isn't strange. Like, get, get to it, right? The reality is, is that this moment might seem strange, and on the surface it kind of is, but symbolically, there is a lot going on here. Symbolically, this, this moment is very heavy, heavy laden with meaning. And for us to kind of uh, help us wrap our heads around like what this would mean kind of in our own kind of thinking and culture, 
Uh, it's kind of like for us, like what would happen to you or me if suddenly we have been given and something has been put on us like, like a cap and a gown? Like what happens when a cap and gown are put on us? Or what happens when uh, someone gives to us and we are able to put on a military officer's uniform? What happens to us when suddenly, you know, we've done work and study and we're suddenly able to, like, really put on, like, the white lab coat, like, as a doctor? Like, not as a Halloween costume, but, like, like legitimate. These are, on one level, these are just articles of clothing that people can put on. But on another level, they're, they're way more than that, right? Like, symbolically, these are signs and symbols of so much more. We're putting these things on our bodies, right? These articles of clothing are markings of authority that that is being given to us and also of an identity that is being bestowed. So, I mean, just to go back to the examples, I I put on the white lab coat. I'm not just, you know, Brian anymore. Suddenly I'm like like Dr. Laws, right? There's a change of identity. There's a change of authority, I put on the, the military officer's uniform. Suddenly, you know, I'm not just, you know, hey, there's my neighbor. It's like, there's private, you know, sergeant, whatever, Ryan. Ron, what was your rank? Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant, oh, they, okay. I don't know how high that is. But <laughs> private's the base layer, right? Like, it's, okay, yeah. So you put on that uniform like it carries a weight. It has a meaning, right? Just on and on. So clothing, the covering, right, matters. The symbol matters. It conveys identity. It conveys authority in a certain kind of way. And that is what Elijah, sorry, Elijah is doing in this moment to Elisha right, in this passage. He, it's, this is Elisha's cap and gown moment. This is Elisha's you know, lab coat going on. And this is where Elisha's story of devotion begins. This is the first time we're meeting Elisha. And his story starts in this way. For us today, I think about our stories of devotion, especially when it comes to the Lord and the gospel. And I think that in many ways, our stories of devotion kind of start in a similar way as to what we are seeing happening here. And you might think, what do you mean, Ryan? Like, I'm not a farmer. Like, I don't, no one's ever thrown a a jacket on top of me unexpectedly. But as we think about our stories, our testimonies of God's grace in our lives, very often when Christ enters our our lives, enters the scene for us, especially in a saving way, we very often, more often than not, are not looking for it. We're just doing our own thing. We're like in our field, plowing, we're doing whatever it is that we do. And then all of a sudden, we've been cloaked, right? All of a sudden, the Lord does a thing, and suddenly our eyes are opened. Right? Suddenly we've been wrapped up in something. Specifically, we, we get wrapped up in a righteousness that is not our own. Right? Suddenly we have this new identity in the gospel and in Christ. The whammy moment. I think... <clears throat> about this, think about covering, and think about how we might see this in scriptures, especially uh, uh, other places like in the New Testament. Think of uh, Paul's words, especially in Galatians 3, I think I have that, yeah, on the screen too. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, Paul writes this, he says, for in Christ Jesus, 
you are all sons of God through faith. So this is the beginning of the story, the beginning of that testimony of grace. You're all sons of God through this faith. He continues, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? Uses this analogy, you put him on, like you're wearing him, right? You've been robed, it's, it's the same idea, being covered. His identity becomes your identity. His righteousness becomes yours as our sinfulness goes to him. If you want to geek out, the systematic theologians, you know, would call this double imputation. Like, I love, the, I love this. I love double imputation. I geek out about double imputation. Our sin to Christ, Christ pays the penalty, Christ's righteousness to us. We receive his reward. Gospel, right? Hallelujah. That's the, the, the transfer of identity here with the covering. And you say, okay, you said authority too, Brian. What are you saying? Like suddenly we become a Christian and we have the same authority as Jesus? Eh, no. Nah. So, you know, the analogy kind of breaks down at some point. But I would say that we, when we come into and suddenly belong to Christ, we do have this new sense of ourselves as children of the king. We do have this new sense of authority as the children of God, adopted into his family, his sons, his daughters. And so we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can pray prayers of petition before the Lord, know that he hears us. Because of this spiritual covering, because of what Christ has done, his righteousness to us, then it leads back to this, this theme thought that I keep having, which is devotion. Because Christ has done this thing, he has covered us, we owe all to him, even as we were singing earlier, right? All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Devotion. No other earthly loyalty, or commitment, or oath should be able to compare to the loyalty and oath and devotion that we are offering to Jesus as our Savior. So Elisha's story of devotion starts with this symbolic covering. And I think that points us forward to our covering that we receive in the gospel by grace through faith. Secondly, not only do we see this symbolic covering, we see that Elisha's devotion story continues with this cutting of ties, this cutting and turning away from Elisha's former life. We see this in, this te- in the text, especially in verse 21, where we see that after this, this brief, kind of strange, kind of ambiguous conversation that we see uh, going on between Elijah and Elisha in verse 20, it's kind of this weird back and forth. Uh, I mean, just to reference it real quickly again, it says, um, you know, so Elisha is running after Elijah and he says, hey, hey, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah replies back, he says, go back again for what have I done to you? It's like a very open-ended question. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of prompting the thought. But it's, it all, this whole conversation is a little bit uh, ambiguous. But what's not ambiguous is what, come, what, what happens right after this, right? Is that Elisha does, like he turns back, but he's not turning back permanently, right? He turns back just long enough to go back to his mom and dad to do what he said he wanted to do, right? To, to give them some love and to cut ties with his former life. 
like literally burning, burning the bridge, right? He's not burning a bridge, he's burning oxen, right? But in, in a very real, very practical way, he is cutting ties with his former identity and moving into this new identity. This again speaks to us in a huge way of Elisha's devotion response here. We read in the text, just to highlight it, verse yeah, 21, as you can see on the screen, and Elisha returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Now, pause for a second here. How many oxen, or sorry, how many yokes did we, did we uh, read or involved here? Twelve yoke of oxen. How many, how many oxen in a yoke? So how many oxen are we talking about being sacrificed here? You're talking 24 oxen. I mean, I don't care how big your Thanksgiving meal was. It does not amount to that much meat. Right? Or maybe you're a tofu person, either way. Uh, that's a huge sacrifice, right? That's a huge offering. And I was, in my head, I was even thinking this week, maybe it was only one yoke. Maybe it was just the, the last yoke that he was with. But it says yokes in the text, right? So it was all, all of them, right? This huge sacrifice, this costly sacrifice. One of the things that scholars point out and note here is that, uh, you know, as we're trying to get to know who Elisha is, we're getting to know, okay, he and his family, they're, they're, they're probably farmers since he's out plowing. They're, in, you know, in, in the ag business, we might say, right? And uh, because of how many oxen we're seeing here, they're probably doing all right, right? They're probably pretty well off. They're probably, they're not hurting, right? They're, they're, they're pretty wealthy. At least they probably were, maybe until this big drought happened that we read about. God's judgment came, there was this huge long drought. Finally the rain came, and that probably, again, by the way, is why finally Elisha's out plowing, because we just, after the, the, you know, the Mount Carmel episode, the rain finally came. So, you know, if you're a farmer, you're like, praise the Lord, rain, let's plow, let's take advantage of this, right? But the point is, you know, Elijah, his family, Elijah had, a, or I'm sorry, Elisha, his family, did you catch it? Okay, I caught it, thank you. Uh, Elisha and his family, they were doing well, but Elisha, when, when Elijah comes calling, he doesn't think twice. Right? He, we don't get any indication that he hesitated, he drops it all, he sacrifices it all. Basically, he says, I'm dead to this, and I'm alive to this new thing. I'm alive to this new calling. Powerful, clear moment of devotion that we see here. For us, I think in a similar way in Christ, we too are those who are called in the gospel to put some stuff to death. Right? Elisha's putting the oxen to death. Paul, for example, in uh, Colossians 3, talks about how we are called to put to death what is earthly in us. These remnants of our past fleshly, Christless life, right? Put to death, he, he, he gets specific, sexual immorality, impurity, uh, you know, passions that are not of the Lord, evil desires. We are called in devotion to Christ to put these things to death. We are called to be those, according to Paul in Romans 6, who reckon ourselves, think about ourselves as those who are dead to sin and alive to God. We are called to be those who are repenters. 
not just one and done, but continually throughout our lives, right? Turning from our past reality and turning towards our new reality in Jesus. And all of this we do, right? the, the putting to death, the turning, the repenting, we do because of God's grace in our lives. God has come to us graciously and kindly. Remember, uh, again, Romans, it is God's grace that leads us to repentance. So we, we do it as a response of God's grace, but we do it too as, as a right and proper indication of devotion to the Lord. It is good and right and proper for us to give all to him, to obey his word when he is clear about what it looks like to surrender things, to put things to death. So, you know, to meddle with us, make it super practical, is there anything in our lives that is, that is an echo, that is a remnant of our former reality, our former identity without Christ that we need to today put to death? kind of recommit again today afresh to say, like, I've, I've been compromising with this thing. It needs to die because of my reality in Jesus. Is there anything you need to cut ties with? As we see Elisha cutting ties with his former life. Of course, repentance, as we rightly understand it in Scripture, in God's Word, is... Uh, it's not only a turning away from something, it's not only a cutting ties with something, but it's also a turning towards something. Right? I turn away from this and I turn towards what? Christ, right? I turn towards the Lord. I tor- turn towards the things of the Lord and the gospel. For Elisha, we see this happening in his story, right? He turns away from his past way of life, Cuts ties with that. And then he turns towards this new calling, this new reality, following after Elisha. Becoming this, as I said at the beginning, this kind of prophetic protege for Elisha. This, this prophet kind of waiting in the wings. We see this note uh, in the very last part of verse 24, where Elisha has uh, you know, given this meat as the sacrifice. You know, he brings the whole community. I mean, he's got... 24 oxen, so he invites all the neighbors, right? Invites everyone to be a part of this. Everyone feasts, everyone eats. And then we're told very simply, the second part of verse 21, then Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is that third reflection, Elisha's new direction, his new calling. He's turning towards Elisha. He's turning towards this calling that the Lord has put upon his life. In many ways, uh, we might note, and rightly note, that this is, I mean, it doesn't sound to me like a glamorous calling, right? I mean, first of all, we've, we've thought about this in the past, and I'll, we'll do it again. Like, being a prophet of God in, in Old Testament Israel was not, like, the super highly desirable gig. Right? The prophets went through it. Their hearts ached over what they saw, the reality of God's people and them going astray. God called them to do these really weird and hard things. All right, so being God's prophet in the Old Testament, not this super glamorous, desirable calling, not this hot gig that everyone was fighting over. Elisha here is not even that, right? He's, he's assisting that guy. Like how many of us in school when we were kids were like, you know what I want to be when I grow up? 
I want to be an assistant to something, to someone doing, you know, like, no. We don't, we don't, that, that's not, we don't want to assist. We want to be the man or the woman right on the top, giving orders, right? But Elisha here gladly steps in to this, this moment, this calling of being an assistant to God's prophet out of devotion to the Lord. So we, we see him go off. He kisses his mom and his dad like he said he was going to do. And he leaves the farm behind. He, like he literally, he leaves the farm. Right? For us in Christ, in a similar way, our new direction, once Christ gets a hold of us, is also similarly not super glorious here and now. Right? Our new calling, our new direction is not one, contrary to some, uh, you know, Christian thought, it's not one of health and wealth and power, right? Our new direction, our new calling is one, I think, as I look at the scriptures, primarily to humility and to service. It is a calling to be among the poor in spirit and to be the poor in spirit, to be among the least of these. That is the new direction we are given as followers of Jesus. When I think of our calling in the gospel, you know this, I I go probably to this far too often, but I often think of this scripture in particular, a little nugget that is to me priceless and world-changing, which is Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man, right, even Jesus, came not to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as followers of Jesus, We follow in the model of Christ. So if we realize how much we have been served by our Savior, by the King of the universe, how can that not translate into us becoming servants ourselves? If the King of the universe was willing to serve us, right? Galatians 5, again, just tying to another place in the New Testament, Paul says that through love we are called to serve one another. That is our reality. That is our new direction, turning from ourself to service because of Jesus and what he has done. So pulling back for a moment, we've seen then how Elisha's devotion, his his all-in commitment starts with this covering, how it continues with this cutting off of his past life, and how it leads finally to this new direction. And with all that, we can see and acknowledge that God's mission is going forward, God's plan is, is being carried on. Even though Elijah, you know, Elijah here, putting the focus back on him, is discouraged and in this place of disbelief, it seems, God's word is going on, right? God's word is continuing. And one of the ways we see God's word continuing is it's stirring up devotion in a guy like Elisha. Stirring up devotion, we, we can notice again, verse 18, that there's 7,000 others in Israel who have not kissed Baal, bowed the knee to Baal. So the, God's purpose, his mission is going on. There's still devotion. There's hope for Israel because there are those who are still devoted to the one true God. Right? Even if Elijah doesn't see it, there will be this passing of the baton. Final thought for us. As we think about this, my kind of takeaway for application for myself and for others is how much this calls us to be in prayer, 
Because as I think about devotion, devotion to Christ, like I know from my experience being a Christian, like I cannot drum up devotion to Jesus in myself. Like I cannot just snap my fingers and say, be devoted to Jesus. And like suddenly I'm devoted to Jesus, right? I can't even, I can't even do that. Like I can want that. And if I want that, praise the Lord. If you want that, praise the Lord. But what we can do is be on our knees and pray, God, Lord, please make me more wholly devoted to you. Right? Again, like we were singing earlier, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. We can pray that prayer, that we would be devoted in that way. Pray that our devotion increases, not in a legalistic way or in a judgy way, but in a way that is truly in light of acknowledging what God has done for us and in us and to us. How he has covered us with his righteousness. Put to death the things that he has called us to put to death because he has called us to do that and go in this new direction. Feels like a lot. I think I'm done. What do you think? So what, what would it be like? What would it be like to be that dog, right? Holding on, holding on to that braided rope. Please, Lord, let me pray for us. Father, God, you are good. God, thank you that you are uh, a God who is committed to us before we even think about being committed to you. And God, I pray that you would continue your good work of grace within us, Lord, and, and cause us to stir one another on towards love and towards good deeds. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Amen.